again, everybody, and welcome back to Bible Time with Pastor Brian. It's been about a couple weeks since we last uh, met up on here, and I do apologize for that. I had some issues with timing and planning when it came to filming, not filming, recording my podcast. Um, the time that I normally record, I couldn't because of some issues we had with our AC unit here at the house, and then I didn't have enough time at school. Uh, to do it during my planning period or anything so and with all the other craziness of things going on at home i just didn't have enough time to get to it and i do apologize for that but we are going to pick back up with it today and hopefully um, get back on track with our uh, weekly podcast here so as you could tell from the cover of this week we're going to be talking about jonah and the whale or was it a whale we're going to dig into that a little bit so the passage specifically that we're going to be covering here on this episode comes from Jonah chapter 1. And Jonah's not a very long book. It's one of the most famous tales of the Old Testament, pun completely intended on that one. But it's also a very short book, very super short. But in Jonah chapter 1, um, all that aside, Jonah chapter 1, verse number 17 says this, says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah, like the book Jonah, translated to English, says great fish. So what do we know about Jonah in this specific story here? We know that God called him to Nineveh to go and preach to the people of the city that their city would be destroyed unless they repented. Jonah runs away from this at first. He does not want to go to Nineveh. That's the last place on earth he wants to go. So he starts sailing towards Tarshish from the port of Joppa. And a huge storm pops up. Everything's going crazy. All the sailors aboard the ship are praying to their own gods, trying to get the storm to stop and nothing's stopping. And it kind of works its way around, and Jonah ends up being the one to have to explain himself as to what's going on and he knows exactly what's happening god is angry with him and he knows that god is angry with him and so he offers and volunteers to be thrown overboard and the sailors are dumbfounded by this they kind of they ask for repentance for sacrificing jonah and they throw him in the water he was completely content with being dead at this point but god had other plans he had a great fish is what it says here in jonah chapter one pick him up, and swallow him out of the waves. Three days later, he spat out. He's still kind of angry. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches half of a message where he says that God's going to destroy them but gives them no room for repentance and then just simply perches himself up on a hillside near Nineveh to watch them get destroyed. Well, God had other plans. He worked a great work in the heart of um, the king of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh, and they ended up repenting for what they had done. And so Jonah gets mad that they repented, and Jonah gets mad that they're not getting destroyed. So we have this interesting story with this weird prophet here. And we have this instance in particular that's probably the most famous of the entire story, of Jonah getting swallowed by this sea creature of some sort. So that's that's the one that we're not sure about, about what he was swallowed by. Most people would say a whale. Um, others would say, no, 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 the Bible doesn't say whale. It says a great fish. Well, we're going to dig into that here. So, some of the background. We, we already talked about that already. The Lord 
Jehovah is what's who is mentioned here. Um, appointed what's called a dog gadol to swallow him. A dog is not a dog. It is a dog. It is a fish. And then a gadol is a great, specifically in magnitude, like in size. So literally, it's a big fish, very big fish. Now, we know from historical context that Jonah is in the Mediterranean Sea. He's not too far away from the coast of what we would now consider Israel, Lebanon, somewhere in that area. And so he's out in the middle of the Mediterranean heading towards the island of Crete, more than likely, or the island of Cyprus heading that way. So what creature that resides in the Mediterranean would be big enough to swallow a human? Now, I've underlined and I also emphasized the word swallowed on purpose. Because there are about a half dozen whales and big fish, sharks included, that have mouths big enough to have a human inside them, but only one that could swallow a human whole. Because there's a difference between just holding it in your mouth and swallowing it. And it's very clear, the Bible is very clear, the language is very clear, that Jonah wasn't just taken into the mouth of a fish, he was swallowed and went down in the belly of a fish. A great fish, a big fish. And so there's only one quote-unquote fish that could have done that, and that is a sperm whale. This is the same whale species that inspired the book Moby Dick. Um, there, there's a sperm whale population that inhabit the Mediterranean Sea, and a very large population of them, somewhere around 2,000, that reside in the vicinity of Crete, which is roughly where Jonah could have been when he was swallowed. So, quite a um, big possibility there. So, it seems likely that it was a whale, specifically the sperm whale here. But where did we get that from considering Jonah, like the book Jonah, just says a big fish? Well, we have to go all the way to the New Testament, and specifically the KJV and NKJV translations of the book of Matthew. Matthew 12.40, Jesus speaks of his own death and resurrection, and he connects it back to Jonah and what happened with him. And some translations, specifically the KJV and NKJV, say a whale swallowed Jonah. Others say a sea creature. Some say a great fish. And then some say a sea monster did it. So why in the world does the KJV and the NKJV say whale? Well, it all goes back to the Greek. And the Greek word is ketos which was the was same as the name given to a large mythological sea creature. Um, Ketas, or Cetas, was the largest sea creature in Greek mythology. And they, as in people in the Greek world at the time, would use that as a, bla a blanket term for any large sea creature. Kind of like us today would say, man, that thing is a behemoth. And it's, if you go back and read the book of Job where it describes behemoth, it's like, no, that's that's not a behemoth. It's not anywhere close to a behemoth. We know that. We understand that. We, we get that. We equate that because of how awesome in magnitude and how massive something is and how strong and powerful something is. We say, man, that's a, that guy's a behemoth. Like, no, he's not like the behemoth from Job. So... That would be being too technical about it at that point. 
everybody that knew the nuances of the English language would understand that when you say that, you're not saying that he is the behemoth, but that he is got that same demeanor about him. Like compared to a normal person, he's massive, he's huge, he's strong, whatever. And so they ended up using this word, ketos, to mean anything large, specifically a sea creature. And according to the, let me try to get this out, Dictionarium Anglo-Britannicum from the year 1706, so just around 100 years or so after the King James Version was translated, a whale is listed as the greatest of all fishes, which would mean it could be called a ketos because it is the biggest of all of them. No, it is not the ketos from Greek mythology, but it is the greatest sized creature in the ocean that they had encountered at the time. So it makes sense that they would translate ketos to whale because a whale was the closest word that they had to the Greek word ketos. But they in back in Jonah, they simply just did a direct translation of dogadol to great fish. So my conclusion, personally, on this, is that the great fish probably was a whale, interestingly enough. I know the first two episodes have been kind of like, well, you thought it was this thing, but it's actually this thing. Haha, <laughs> I tricked you. But this one, I'm... I kind of agree. Not, no, I don't kind of agree. I, I do agree with the fact that it was a whale. Because I believe that that's where the evidence points to. That's where the logic goes, is to this great sea fish creature thing being a whale that swallowed him. And so taking that into account, going back to Matthew 12, did Jonah die in the whale's belly and get resurrected three days later? Because Jesus makes that connection in Matthew 12. Maybe. It would make sense as a symbol for Jesus' death and resurrection. There's no proof of this from the text specifically back in Jonah. But there is a good possibility. Like, if you go back and read it in Jonah, I mean, you can kind of imply, I guess, that since he's in the belly of a fish for three days, that's probably not going to do a good number on your body. All the stomach acids and all of the horrible bile that's in there it's probably not going to be good for you. And more than likely, with the toxic gas and everything, you probably would die at that point. And he's resurrected, in a sense, when he's spat back up on the shore three days later. Which, connecting it back to Matthew 12, that's what Jesus was trying to say. Was that just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, or the whale, for three days, so shall the Son of Man be, and dead and in the tomb for three days. <laughs> And talking about some of the rabbinical stuff, I've, I've kind of got an interest in that from um, from the last few studies that we've done. I hadn't really dug too much into like the Talmud and the Midrash and things along those lines. But they have a lot of commentaries about Jonah, about the Magi, about or not really the Magi, about the forbidden fruit. And so here's some of the thoughts that I gathered about Jonah. There is a massive rabbinical tradition around Jonah that draws itself from centuries of commentaries by rabbis and extra-biblical te texts, like I mentioned with the Midrash and the Talmud. You may research these on your own if you would like, but I won't get into them on this podcast. Uh, and I, I give you a word of caution if you do look into them. The writings such as the Midrash, the Talmud, and other contain stories and details not found in Scripture. 
and many were written centuries after the New Testament, further separating them from the Old Testament texts that they offer commentary on. A lot of these texts from the Midrash and the Talmud were written, written in like the 200s AD, 100s, somewhere there. And so even and some even further than that, up in the 4 and 500s. So these are almost a thousand years after what was going on here in Jonah. Um, while many of the ideas and stories are harmless and provide helpful background source material, cultural connotations, there are others that teach biblical principles through fables created around Old Testament characters, Jonah included, that definitely venture into the realm of mythology and contain accounts that are inconsistent with the truth of Scripture and even conflict with each other in their interpretations and created stories. I will give you one such instance here, uh, is with Jonah, is a lesser-known rabbinical teaching that Jonah was the child Elisha resurrected in 2 Kings 4. Do we have proof of that? No. Would it make a cool connection? I guess so. But there are some rabbis out there in the early um, AD era, I guess you could call it, 1st and 2nd and 3rd centuries there, that actually honestly theorized and thought that Jonah was the child that Elisha resurrected in 2 Kings 4. The only basis given in the rabbinical teaching is this, was that he was from the same area, Jonah's home village of Gath-Hefar, or Gath-Hefor, sorry, is not from, or not far from Shunem, where the miracle happened, and that Jonah and Elisha lived around the same time, because Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, so not too long after that. Other than that, not much evidence, really, to speak of, of this whole thing happening. Imagine every person who claims to be a Christian minister writes their personal thoughts on the book of Romans, and it gets published as a big collection with no disclaimers. Talk about chaos. That's a simplistic look at what the Midrash and the Talmud are. So, kind of restating what I just said. Imagine taking um, a passage or some of the texts of Scripture that's up for a debate, that's up for discussion, that has been through centuries, and you get a Pentecostal preacher, a Baptist preacher, a Catholic priest, a Presbyterian minister, an Eastern Orthodox priest, and Coptic Christian from Egypt, what have you, and you have them sit down, a Calvinist, a Lutheran, and you have them all sit down and they all write their own commentary on, um, let's say the Book of Romans, that one's pretty good, I, I picked a good one on my original example, let's say the Book of Romans, and they type it up or write it up, whatever, and it all gets thrown into one big book that says commentary on Romans, and they just publish it as all of them being equally true. That can be problematic sometimes because, yes, people have different interpretations on Scripture, but some of those interpretations are incorrect. Do we know for certain which in interpretations are incorrect? Absolutely not. But there are some that we can kind of pick around and say, yeah, that's probably not um, the right way to look at that. And somebody that doesn't understand and doesn't know if they just started picking up and just read it cover to cover. Like, oh, I'm going to read these commentaries on the Book of Romans. Boy, are they are going to be confused by the time they get to the end of that thing. Or they're just going to give up halfway through and be like, this thing is just contradicting itself like crazy. And if you ever get the chance, that's, that's kind of what the Midrash does in the Talmud. You have hundreds and hundreds of different scribes and rabbis that are offering their opinions on the Old Testament, on the stories that are included there. 
And they get very, very, very fanciful with some of the things that they talk about. Like, one of them, just kind of remembering off the top of my head and talking about Jonah, was that Jonah, um, the fish that swallowed him, that were debating about what it was, what, what species of animal it was, had been created at the foundation of the world just for that specific purpose, and that it was going to die after it spat Jonah. Like, God made it when he made the world, and this thing had lived for however many years between creation and then, just waiting for the moment to swallow Jonah and then die afterwards. And literally, one of the stories kind of went along those same lines and said, it not, not that it was just going to die, but that it was actually going to be food for Leviathan. Um, and so the fish somehow ends up introducing Jonah to Leviathan and also giving him a tour of the seafloor. It's very strange. Very, very, very strange. And also gives him a tour of like the spot in the Red Sea where Moses parted the waters and all sorts of stuff. Once again, very extra biblical, very unnecessary. And just kind of people thinking out loud, I guess, and theorizing out loud, which by itself isn't a bad thing. But if you're a religious leader and you start publishing that and pushing that out there as being truth, maybe that's not the best thing to do. When you look at a passage that's unclear about something and you dig into the cultural context and it, it gives you a little bit more info, but then you kind of take that cultural context and you take the actual text of scripture and then you kind of formulate a almost a historical fiction around it where it's based on true historical events and customs and cultures, languages, um, ideas, but some of the characters are completely made up. Some of the stories are completely made up. And this is done to drive home biblical truth. It's done to teach people lessons, show people the truth of the scriptures. But a lot of times it ends up being that teacher's interpretation of the truth rather than the truth itself. And so any biases that that teacher will have will work their way into those stories as well to where they end up kind of doing the same thing. And so I think we kind of, we're kind of guilty of that too, um, in a roundabout way. Now, the normal person like you that's listening to this podcast, more than likely you've never written a book on certain controversial theological topics or anything. I haven't, uh, not yet, definitely not yet. But there are some out there that have, and they'll say things that aren't biblical at all, they sound nice, they sound good, they sound comforting maybe to some people, but they have no basis in the truth. They have the truth and they just kind of build way too far off of it. So if you've ever seen architecture, let's say from like um, medieval England or early frontier in America, if you've ever heard of something called a blockhouse, where the base of it is like a box, but then they build a bigger box on top of it, not below, um, which there were whole different purposes attached to that. But you end up with this top-heavy building. It's very stable because the bottom is built very well and they understood things. But if you built it too big, you could cause it to fall over, cause it to not be able to support itself. And that's a lot of what people do. They have this solid biblical base that they're taking and building from 
but then they're adding so much on top of it that you end up losing the base itself. Um, the old phrase is, you can't see the forest for the trees. So I'd say, well, the forest is made up of trees. It's like, yes, yes it is. But if you spend all your time focusing on the trees, you're not going to see the whole forest. Like, you're you're going to get lost in um, just looking at trees. And that's kind of where we end up falling sometimes, is where we see a truth that we really like, we read a passage that we really like, but it comes up short of explaining something that we want it to explain. And so we just kind of infer what the next part of it's going to be. We add stuff to scripture. We toss in our own ideas and opinions, some of them very culturally attached. Um, and what, what do I mean when I say that, culturally attached? Think of us, like, think of American culture. We are a very, it's called Western culture. And one thing, and I, I hope I don't make any enemies when I say this, the Bible was not written to the Western culture. Western culture was built on biblical principles, but the Bible itself was not written to a Western society. It wasn't written to a people group that thought like the United States of America does, or Britain, or France, or anyone like that during the 1780s and 90s. It was written to first century Middle Easterners and first century members of the Roman Empire in Rome and in Greece and in Turkey and in North Africa. And that's who it was written to. And so when you understand that and when you go back and dig into the cultures that the Bible was being written amongst and the people it was being written to, a lot of it makes a lot more sense than if you try to read it from a 21st century perspective. Now, does that mean it doesn't have anything for us? No, of course it still has stuff for us today. It still has things that we can use, of course, and follow after the Lord. And um, It's good for um, reproving and rebuking and learning and studying and being more like Jesus. But don't think that our current culture has everything right when it comes to the Bible. Don't think that our culture, or even like, um, as much as I'm, I'm a history person, if you guys didn't know that, I'm a big history person. I love history. It's what I teach um, day in and day out at the high school. But um, the Bible was not written in the same mindset and mentality that like the Constitution and the Declaration were. The Declaration and Constitution were derived from principles that came out of the Bible. They had their foundations in ideas and opinions and cultural connotations and things that came from scripture and from the influence of the church onto society. But the society that those texts were originally written to was not the same one that it would influence later on. It was dominated by the Roman Empire. It was dominated by Greek philosophy. And specifically in the area that the Bible was written to, or at least the Gospels was focused on at first was written to a very, very misguided and misleading group of Pharisees that really honestly thought that they were doing the right thing. That's that's one thing that when I was younger and studying this, I would get angry at the Pharisees, get mad at them. Like, oh my goodness, Jesus is, he's the Messiah. He's the one that has been promised to you guys for so many years. Why are you not accepting him? But then when you understand where the Pharisees were at the time, 
mentally speaking, culturally speaking, influentially speaking. Jesus was a threat to them. And they were so far removed from the good, solid teachings that had been given centuries before, they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah because he wasn't who they were looking for. They were looking for another David. They were looking for somebody to kick the Romans out. And you've got Jesus saying things um, when Jesus is giving one of his sermons to the people. He mentions about if somebody compels you to go a mile with them, go two. That was an old Roman thing where the Roman authorities demanded that if you were under Roman authority there, if a Roman soldier or a Roman like civilian traveling through your area needed you to carry something, you were obligated, not just suggested, you were obligated to carry that for at least a mile. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said it. If somebody compels you to go a mile, go two. Go two with them. Obviously, the Pharisees aren't going to want to hear that. Uh, definitely not. But see, don't, don't think of them as being these evil, slimy, conniving people in the corner. They did have a little bit of talk, a touch of that, definitely. But in all honesty, they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were doing what was best for their nation and for their religion. And they were just very misguided by years and years of bad teaching. Don't let that be you or your family or your church or your descendants, whether physically or spiritually, I guess, is the best way to put that. Don't let that be you. Don't let future generations look back and say, yep, it was with that, that person right there. That's the reason our, our family or our church or our group or whatever started deviating from the truth of Scripture because they deviated first. Might have been in something little, might have been in something small, but they deviated and caused further deviation from that point. But to where a hundred or so years in the future, that group is not even close to believing the truth because they have strayed so far away at that point. And that's kind of what I'm, I'm cautioning you with. I said all that for the last 10 minutes to say this. Um, when, if you ever get a chance to read the Midrash or the Talmud, that's kind of what's going on. These rabbis had spent years, decades, centuries even, separated from the good, solid teachings of the prophets that they just completely start making up these stories that have no basis, that have no truth behind them. They talk about a true story, but they add so many fanciful details, kind of like the ones I mentioned a little bit ago with Jonah and the fish and traveling to the spot in the Red Sea where Moses part of the waters and meeting Leviathan and all that fun stuff. If you've ever read the Gospel of Peter, it has something similar to where like a floating talking cross floats out of the tomb behind Jesus when he resurrects from the grave and starts speaking to the crowd of people. That is what you would call myth, Christian mythology at that point, or at least mythology based on Christian ideas and principles. And so don't don't allow yourself to fall to that because they're, they're neat little stories if you want to go read them, but don't hold to them as being true. You can pull a lot of cultural context out of it where you can see where those rabbis were coming from and understand that they were trying to give, trying to fill in the blanks because people were asking questions like, hey, what did Jonah do those three days while he was in the fish? So, well, the Bible doesn't say, but maybe he was doing this. Maybe the fish took him here. Or maybe that fish was so specific that it was created at the beginning of the world just for that purpose. And if it was created for that purpose, maybe what would happen afterwards? Well, I guess it would die. 
Or would it just die, or would it do something else? Well, maybe I guess it's food for Leviathan. See, you kind of see that thought process there. Is that they just start adding and adding and adding and adding and adding with no solid ground to build that on. Be careful with that. When you learn something or when you hear something that kind of rubs you the wrong way as a Christian, where you're like, I don't, I'm not sure if that's actually true or not. Go, go to, go to the Bible first. That's, that's my first uh, trip there after hearing something that I, that kind of throws up the red flags, I guess. I go to scripture. I'm like, okay, they're saying this is about this story or about this passage or about this person. Let me go look and find everything I can read about that person specifically. And if I can't find it, I'm going to have a really hard time trying to believe that it's true. You're going to have to convince me. Because if it's not in the Bible, and the only place that it exists is in a, a book of commentaries that makes up a bunch of stuff anyway, I probably won't believe it to be true. A good illustration? Possibly. A good story? Maybe. But not the truth. So my goal, my challenge to you, I guess is the best way to put it, is when you learn something, you hear something that you've never heard before, go look at it in scripture. Because our faith has been around for almost 2,000 years. I, I think we've run out of new stuff to find, if I'm being honest. Um. I, I don't think there's any new special revelations that are being given. And I could be wrong about that. I could be completely dead wrong about that. But uh, currently, I don't believe that I am. And when it comes to something crazy, um, something way far out there, don't, don't sit there and think, well, maybe that might be true. No, it's probably really far out there. And they're just using a good, solid biblical story and twisting it and adding things to it to make you think that what they're saying is true instead. And what they're trying to get you to hold on to and believe in is true instead. So, um, next week, uh, we're going to move on and hopefully everything will go good and I'll be able to get it uploaded, um, and get it recorded when I'm supposed to. So, Thank you guys again. Uh, once again, I apologize so, so much uh, for not being able to put this out last week. Um, it just kept seeming like everything kept popping up in the way, and I just couldn't find the time to do it. And maybe it's because the Lord had a specific purpose for this podcast. I'm not sure. But I pray that it was good and that it gave the Lord honor and glory. So let me pray to close us out here today. God in heaven, as we come before you, we're just... So honored, so blessed, so humbled for everything you've done, and for all that you've given us here today, and uh, for the weather today. God, I know it kind of rained a little bit, but you know what we need, and we're thankful for you knowing what we need and providing for us. I pray, God, that this podcast, you would make sense of the mess that I put out there, and let your pure and holy and true message shine through to anybody that chooses or is led to listen to this podcast. And I pray that you give me the ability and the time and the um, dedication and strength to be able to put out another episode next week on time um, to where I can keep giving you glory and honor and studying your word with, with these people. And God, I thank you for sending them my way, and I thank you for giving me this opportunity. God, I love you, I thank you, and I praise you above all others. And it's in Jesus' name I do humbly pray. Amen. Thank you all again. 
and I will see you next week.